All right. Well, I think we got everybody going here. So, so you know, like I talked about last week, for anyone who wasn't here, you know, what we're doing really all year for 12 calendar months is we're going to just be working through that very, very simple reading plan that I've sent out, uh, that Navigator's reading plan, which is five days a week, five minutes a day. And and so obviously I'm not teaching every verse in that reading plan. It'd be pretty tough to teach the whole New Testament verse by verse for in in, in one year. Uh, but what I'm doing is I'm just doing the reading plan right along with you guys. And just as a passage hits me, I'm just going to stop on it and we'll research it and get it ready for the week to come. Uh, so it's fun for me. I, I actually, what I've been doing from a method standpoint, I've been reading ahead, you know, getting a week ahead. And then uh, been thinking and researching throughout the week on whatever verse I pick. And then each night, my family and I are just spending time reading, reading the reading plan together. Uh, so I kind of read these stories over and over and over again, and, which has been a lot of fun for me. So today, I wanted to, to camp out in Mark 5, and I promise it actually is Mark 5 this time. For those of you who caught my error last week, uh, we will be in Mark 5 today. Uh, verses 1 through 20, which is just a crazy story. I mean, this, this story of, of this demon-possessed man who, who has this crazy encounter with Jesus, and there's pigs who ended up running down a, a cliff and dying in the Sea of Galilee. I mean, it's just a weird, it's a weird story. And, and I know that as a kid in particular, I, I heard this thing taught a couple of times, and it was one of those you just kind of scratch your head at and move on because it, it feels a little eerie and a little odd. Uh, and then even as an adult, reading through it, it's like, yeah, I'll figure that one out later. I mean, that's just odd. It felt like a lot of wasted bacon to me. So so it's just, I mean, but, but all of God's word is given to us for instruction. Uh, there's something there. And, and like I kind of said in the email I sent out last night, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's just a fascinating thing that the passages in the Bible that seem to haunt me, that, that I just wrestle with, or I, I, I struggle to understand, I struggle to see the goodness in it, I struggle to, to, to really get it. Any of those passages, once I learn them, once I really allow God to teach it and, and, I, and I soak in it for a while, those passages tend to become the most beautiful stories for me. And that's one reason why you guys hear me quote Job 38 all the time is because for me, whenever I first read Job, I wanted to walk away from God. I, 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 that, that story was terrifying to me. Uh, that was not the God I thought he was. And, and now when I read Job, I understand the beauty and majesty of God. And it's just great. And so this story for me is a bit similar of just seeing through it, seeing different angles of it. And like most things I teach, I would not be able to teach this lesson if it were not for Terry Fix. So, so you know, for any of you guys who've gotten to go on the Israel trip, which I'm looking at a few of you who are on the trip with me, uh, we got to stand in the place that this story occurred. And it was just, it really, really helped uh, bring this story to life. So I'm going to teach a bit of what Terry taught us with a few things added in. And make sure that this story can be one that comes to life for you as well. And that whenever you read through it for the rest of your life, it doesn't scare you. It doesn't haunt you. You can explain to your kids and grandkids and great-grandkids one day why in the world all those darn pigs had to die, right? So, so we'll, let's get into this. Yeah, it'll, yeah I, I tell you what, I've never had an issue with uh, consuming pork products. Uh, matter of fact, I've been the exact opposite. I remember once I was in Australia and went to a restaurant with... 
a friend of mine, and I had this incredible burrito. I mean, it was a really good burrito and ate a lot. I mean, it was kind of crazy. And so then we're walking back to the hotel afterwards, and he goes, did you like that? I said, yeah, I really like that. That was, that was great. I'm going to come back. And he goes, did you know that that was 100% vegan? And I said, what? And he goes, yeah, no, there was no meat in that whatsoever. And at that point in time, my brain switched gears, and it says, you have tricked me. And, and my body was messed up for five days. I had, to, I had to replace it. The next day, I ate four different types of pork products uh, just to try to apologize uh, to my body. But anyway... That's not what we're here to talk about. So uh, there's going to be three characters in this story that Jesus is going to interact with. He's going to interact with the legion of demons, which we'll talk about. He's going to interact with the herdsmen in the town. And he's going to interact with the demon-possessed man, so the man himself, once he has been healed. And I want you to kind of pay attention to these three interactions as we read the text. And I want you also to really pick out an observation I saw, which is all three of these characters, they all beg Jesus for something. And I think it's interesting to see what each of them beg Jesus for. So I want you to just keep your Bibles open to Matthew or to Mark chapter 5. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to kind of go a couple verses at a time and stop and kind of dig into each verse, and then I'll wrap it up at the end. Uh, but really make sure we understand it as we walk through it. So let's start here with, with, with verse 1 in chapter 5. And it says this, it says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And so if you've got that handout I sent out to you guys in your, in your deal, and I apologize, I didn't bring handouts for you guys. Uh, my bad, my bad. You know what, I wish I knew someone in communications who would just print these for me and bring them, Marty. Um, be a great volunteer opportunity for you, Marty Delonji. Anyway, if you look at, if, if you can, for you guys in the room, you can imagine a map of Israel for a second, and Jim's got one in the back, and I'll kind of hold this up, but for you guys on the call, just look at the email I sent out. But this map of Israel, I want to make sure we put it in context, uh, because, you know, a lot of Jesus' ministry occurs around the Sea of Galilee, and it's really helpful when you go to Israel and you see it that you can look across the Sea of Galilee and pretty much see to the other side at any time. It's pretty wide, five, six miles wide in points, but it's so flat, you can see all the way across, and you can see on the horizon little Jewish village after Jewish village that Jesus would have just walked to, uh, he would have just walked to and, and done his ministry. But I know whenever I normally have read the Bible in the past, before I went to Israel, I had this idea that all the people in the Bible that Jesus interacted with really came from the same background. Uh, I just assumed they were all Jewish people uh, in their nature, and he's kind of interacting with the same types of people. But what's different is that you got lots of people from very different backgrounds all in this area. So in the area of Galilee, so on kind of the east side of the sea, or the west side of the Sea of Galilee, you got a lot of Jewish villages. But as you go around, and especially as you get to this area called the Decapolis, you get a lot of Gentiles. So the, De the Decapolis is, is called the Decapolis because it's really made up of 10 Greek cities, traditionally Greek cities, that are on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And so you'll, you'll sometimes see that called beyond the Jordan, and, and you'll see these guys go east. 
But these are Gentiles. These are not Jewish people in this area. Uh, you hear about the Syrophoenician woman in, in the stories as you read through the reading plan in Mark. And that's going to be up further northwest in that area of Tyre, Sidon. Um, and also, you know, not traditionally Jewish areas. You see Samaria in between Judea and Galilee, which you've got a lot of mixed you know, mixed people groups. You know, you've got kind of a very distorted version of Judaism that's being practiced. Based on the whole, we won't get into it, but people being replaced and displaced from the Assyrian invasion and everything else. So, so you've got a lot of different groups. You've got the religious leaders and Jerusalem down south. Up in the Sea of Galilee, it's lots of small villages. And as you go around to the Decapolis, you're going to get into Gentile areas. And so where this story takes place, the uh, Gerasenes, uh, is right on the southeast corner of the Sea of Galilee in Gentile area. So I just want to make sure you, you set your mind on this, that this is not going to be a traditional Jewish village that we're, that we're dealing with. Does that make sense? Southeast corner there. So, so that's where we are, where we are and, and who we're going to be dealing with in this text. So as we begin the story, I want us to... to really make sure we understand the nature of sin a little bit as we begin this story. So let me read verses 2 through 5. It says, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackle in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now, I want you to to try to put yourself in the setting. I want you to think about this. this. That picture I sent to you guys last night is really looking down into the sea where the cliff would have been that the pigs are going to run down that we'll talk about here in a second. And then off to what would have been kind of, you know, behind that shot, you would have seen this little rock cliff, you know, and there's not, like we were talking about, that's literally the only rock cliff right there like that on the sea. And, and so when you think about tombs, I want you to think about just kind of like this, this basic rock cliff, you know, rocks into the side of a, a small hill, relatively large hill, where little caves would have been dug in and people would have used those caves for tombs. And so you would have seen this, this kind of elevated you know, hill there where this man who had been demon-possessed would have been just up there living in and out of those caves, and it's just kind of odd. And, and so and then you would have had a, you know, going down that caves, you got to a bit of a flat area, then it goes down right into the Sea of Galilee. But actually a very beautiful, very beautiful place. So, so when you think about this demon-possessed man, though, I don't want you to immediately assume that demon possession is not what it says it is. Uh, I think right now we, we tend to hear demon possession and we try to reconstruct the Bible to make it into a mental illness or some sort of psychological disorder. And that's actually not the case here. These are, this guy is actually demon-possessed. And I'm not going to get into a full study on demon possession today. Uh, but let's let the Bible say what it, it's wanting to say here. This man was possessed um, by demons. But this guy actually is truly possessed. And what, what, what I wanted you guys to see in this is this, this guy is a great example for us of what it looks like from a character standpoint on the far extreme to be completely overcome by sin. 
if you think about what the demons actually are, if you kind of go back to this, demons are just fallen angels, right, who joined with, with Satan in the rebellion. And we see a legion of demons in this. We'll get to that in a second. Where, I mean, this, this guy is completely consumed. And so if you want to think about an extreme example of what it looks like to be consumed by sin, you see it in this man. And so what do we see happen to this man? What is he experiencing in the midst of being consumed by a far extreme example of sin? What do you see happening to this guy? Yeah, there's, there, there is some power in it, right, in, in the, the forces that are possessing him. What else do you see in this guy? Anti-socialism. He's been isolated, right? He's been isolated. He's, he's under torment, right? What's that? He wants help. But if you look at this, I, I think this is a really good example to sit there and think about what does sin do, right? Sin is a destructive force, right? It is a destructive force. You look at this guy, he is in agony. He is isolated. He is away from the people he loves. He is, he, he is, what, he is hurting himself, right? He is cutting himself. He is screaming out, right? You see sin as an absolute destructive force, right? If we get anything out of this lesson today, I want you to see what sin is. This is it's just, it's a great visual representation of it, right? Sin is not something that you can tame. It's not something you can control. It's not something that, that is not that bad, right? And I think that's what we tend to make sin out to be. It's something that eh, it's really not that bad. This guy's gone all the way, right? I mean, he's, he's, he's been possessed by people who rebelled against God uh, and in their nature have just, have just become destruction, right? And I want you to think of sin in that manner. That is what sin is. And you think about what sin does to us personally. In practical terms, sin does destroy our bodies, right? It does isolate us from the people we love. It does destroy marriages, right? It, like, we can see these things manifest themselves in a life of sin. And I don't want to be too legalistic or anything when I'm, when I'm teaching this, but it's just, that's just what it is. Right? And, I, and at some point in time in my life, in this class, I'm going to quit quoting Paradise Lost. But I love how in Paradise Lost, Satan explains what the mission is going to be of him and himself and all the fallen angels. Right? And again, this is not inspired text, but, but Paradise Lost sets this, this scene of where Satan is, is they've, they've been bound in hell, and they realize just that their life is going to be miserable, right? I mean, this is not a good thing for them. And they, they're, they're trying to determine what is their purpose going to be, you know, at this point in time. And they say this. They say, fallen cherub, you know, talking about the angels, to be weak is miserable, doing or suffering, but of this be sure. To do aught good never will be our task, but ever to do ill our sole delight as being the contrary to his high will whom we resist. If then his providence out of our evil seeks to bring forth good, our labor must be to pervert that end. You get this idea of the nature of sin is going to be to pervert, to destroy all that God has given in his creation that is good. Right? And you think about going back to the creation story in Genesis of all the things in this world that were good, there was one thing that was very good. And what was the one thing that was very good? Man. Right? Man and woman here on earth was very good. So you see this goal 
of these demonic forces, and like I said, let's let them be what they are here in the Bible, is to destroy what is very good, to pervert the end of God. So I want you to think about whenever you're reading this story in the future, I want you to see that demon-possessed man and see the far extreme of the destructive forces of sin. Make sense? Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll keep going through here. Then we see this interaction take place between Jesus and this demon-possessed man. And it says this in verse 6, if you're following along in your Bible. It says, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And just real quick, most high God would have been a Gentile term, right? Just in case you see that's it, a little bit different terminology. Helps you see that they are in the Decapolis, right? Son of the most high God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And so just stopping there for just a second. My name is Legion, for we are many. Remember where they are. We're in the midst of the Roman Empire at this point in time. And just for any Roman historians, right, I mean, a legion, a Roman legion was a group of 4,000 to 6,000 soldiers. The legion system was in place for centuries in the Roman Empire as a way that they actually went through and engaged in warfare. And so the Roman legion would then be broken down into centuries, which were normally around 80 soldiers, not 100, which is a bit confusing. But they would be broken down into centuries and beneath. So they're saying legion, right, because we are many. Everyone who would have heard that would have, would have thought about the Roman soldiers at that point in time and seeing four to 6,000 Roman soldiers in all their power and glory, you know, marching through. So this is a big force, right? Again, it's a, it's a big force. And so... Jumping back in here, uh, he says in verse 10, it says, And he begged him earnestly. Watch that beg there. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he, being Jesus, gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering around 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. And I know what you're all thinking. That's a lot of pigs, right? That's a lot of pigs, 2,000 pigs. Anyone worked a pig farm before? 2,000 pigs. I mean, that, that, that's, that's pretty incredible. So, I mean, that's a lot of smell. I mean, if you think about that, that's a big pig farm. Like, that's a big pig farm today, right? Can you imagine this little bitty Gentile village? I mean, 2,000 pigs, this is a big economic endeavor going on uh, with these pigs. And so you see, you see these demonic spirits begging to do what is in their nature. What is in the nature of sin is to destroy, to be a destructive force. And they are begging not to be cast out, but to go into something else to continue to be a destructive force. And I, and I don't know exactly why Jesus allowed this to occur, it may be to show that he has command over all spiritual things, you know, not just the good. I mean, you're seeing some pretty cool things in here. You're seeing command over spiritual forces. You're seeing command over animals. You're seeing command over man. You're seeing command over both Jewish and Gentile people. I mean, you're seeing some power of Jesus in this. But I think also that this gives us a great illustration of what sin does. It goes from a man who is destroying himself into pigs, more feeble-minded animals, 
who then just run down a cliff and die in the Sea of Galilee. That is the nature of sin. I think, I think if anything, this tells us, do not underestimate the destructive force, but see that they were begging to do what was in their nature. So then, moving on in the story, we have this interaction between Jesus and the Gentile herdsmen. So, and I want you to think about this, the people we're going to talk about. These are just good old boy farmers, right, who are in the town, who are trying to run a, a fairly large pig farm operation. So let's read this starting in verse uh, 14. It says, The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. So a couple things here. Anyone who's lived in a small town before knows that if anything happens in a small town, you're going to run back and tell everyone else in the small town what had happened. So that, that completely makes sense. These guys see this crazy thing happen. They run back into town. They tell everything what's going on. So then you get a greater number of people. You know, I don't know how many, but you get a bigger number of people who are going to come back and try to understand what had occurred here. And we see a couple reactions out of these people. What, what, reaction, what reaction did you see out of the people in this story? And we'll get to that here in a second. So, so they're, they're seeing, so there's, there's, a, there's an economic reality uh, for these guys, right? Any, any other observation you guys saw? They're afraid, right? So I want you to think about, it. in the nature of the herdsmen right now, there is a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear. They're afraid because they've just lost a bunch of money, and they're assuming that Jesus sticks around, that he's going to probably cost them more money doing something else. They're also afraid, they're also afraid because they have no idea what just happened, right? These guys haven't been on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They haven't been in Bethlehem. They haven't been in Nazareth. They, they don't know who this guy is, right? They haven't seen all these incredible healings occur. They, they don't know. They're, they're on the far southeast side of the Sea of Galilee in Gentile land. They're in the Decapolis, right? They don't know the Jewish prophecies very well. They, 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 there's no context. They see this incredible thing happen, and like a lot of people just scared to death and so in their nature is just fear and so they're begging jesus to just alleviate their fear they want him to go away right and and he does get back in the boat and go away but i want you to see this that that they're just i mean this is this is something i mean obviously they, they would not want him around and i think it's interesting that instead of asking questions about his power asking questions about who he is asking questions about the background in their fear they reject and I think you're going to see that a lot in our society as well. In the fear of what they see as supernatural, they reject. Uh, and, and, I mean, this was not in my notes, but just going down that, that rabbit trail for just a second. Uh, for us in our culture today, uh, we, we very much have a predominant trend in naturalism, which means that if it cannot be explained based on our wisdom with processes and procedures we know that we can control in science, right, we, we, we assume it can't exist, right? And there's all kinds of supernatural forces in the world. Every culture in this world has believed in supernatural forces to a certain extent because man cannot explain everything that goes on in this world. But you see, for us today, we're going to be dealing with a lot of people who, when they see things occur that they can't explain, their natural reaction is fear and rejection. 
right? Versus at opening your mind to something that could be a bit different than you believed it possibly could be. So we see that fear here in these herdsmen as well. So then we get into the next interaction in this story, which I just love. And so the healed man has an interaction with Jesus. So let's go to verse 18. And it says, as he, talking about Jesus, was getting into the boat, so Jesus is leaving the scene here, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. So just real fast, what's the demon-possessed man who's been healed, what's he now begging for? Inclusion. Inclusion. He wants to be close to Christ, right? He wants to be with Christ. You know, the nature of the demon was destruction, Right? The nature of the herdsmen were fear. The nature of the man who had been saved by Christ was that he wanted to be with Christ. Right? And, and how awesome is that? And I think all of you guys here who have had this experience of spiritual awakening, there is something about our nature is we just want to be with Christ. We want to be with Christ's followers. We want to be in church. We want to go worship God on Sunday. We, like, those are the desires that we have. This guy wasn't concerned about whatever equity investment his family may have had in that pig farm. You know, he wasn't concerned about what had happened to him in the past. He just wanted to go and be with Christ. And for him, that was probably the most comfortable thing he could possibly imagine was to just go and follow Christ. He wanted to get on the boat. He wanted to go wherever he was going to go. That's what he wanted, right? That, and, and I have so much sympathy for that. I mean, I, I can only, if I were in his shoes, I can imagine nothing more than just trying to be with the one who had given me this incredible second chance, who had made me a new creation. So then it, it raises a really good question. Jesus doesn't let him do it, right? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, you had a question. Yeah, I mean, you know, think about that. So and we'll, we'll get to that here in a second. So you go, so you think about, it's a great example for you guys on Zoom who may not have heard. The question was, It'd be so easy if we were one of the herdsmen, right? If we were one of the herdsmen and say, now we know this guy, he's lost. I mean, that guy, that guy, I mean, he's screaming out in agony, cutting himself on a daily basis, right? I mean, this guy is no good. I mean, his family doesn't come around. Everyone's left him. You just, you know, let that guy be. And, and, and Jesus said, no, 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 I can heal him too, right? And so it's, it's, we should never judge anyone. I mean, honestly, we've all been sinners. We've all been prey to that destructive force. We're just getting an extreme example of it here in this story. So why is it that you think Jesus, you know, and for anyone who knows this answer, don't blurt it out, right? But why why is it you think Jesus did not want um, this man to stay with him? So let's 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 read here in verse 19. Jesus has a greater plan in this entire story. He says, verse 19, he goes, And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. A couple things real quick. The, this, this miracle in this story, this man being healed, would be enough for inclusion in the Bible, right? I mean, it's, it's an incredible story that we can unpack a whole lot out of. But, you know, as I'm reading this part of it, I'm, I'm a bit perplexed because I sit there, I'm like, I'm reading all these stories of Jesus' ministry, and you just would have got done reading them in, in the book of Mark, where he's telling people, hey, I just did this, keep your mouth shut, right? Keep your mouth shut, right? So he, he, and, and so this, is as opposed to in the Jewish villages, as he's doing this ministry, he's saying, be quiet, follow me, right? Versus here, he's saying, go home and speak, 
And, and so that troubled me a little bit. Why the discrepancy in the guidance here? And so I think there's a couple things on this. I think one is practical. Uh, I think if you think about the, the sort of the map is helpful. Jesus' ministry had been really concentrated in the Jewish areas. Uh, those people knew the context of the prophet, prophecy of the Messiah. Uh, he knew the reaction that would be coming from the religious leaders. He knew that he had a mission to go to the Jewish villages and teach. And he knew that if there were too many hordes and masses of people every single time, he would not be able to fulfill that. So I think there's part of that where he's practical, very practical of be quiet. The time has not yet come to reveal all of this to these people. I've got things I need to do in this process. But I think this is also symbolic, right? He tells this man to go home and tell his friends and family about what the Lord had done for him, right? He is, he, he's telling this guy to go back to a Gentile people and say that Yahweh, the God of Israel, has blessed this Gentile man, and he wants you to know about it, right? He wants you to know about it. I, I, I guarantee you the disciples who, who witnessed this miracle and then witnessed a couple other miracles that had occurred with Gentiles and, uh, that precede this and then come after, right? There's some confusion there, right? Because everyone believed that the Messiah was going to be for the Jewish people only. And Jews make it very clear, now go out and tell all those Gentiles what the God of Israel has done for you, right? What the God of the Jewish people has done for you, right? And so all of us here, unless you are a Jewish by ancestry, right? Almost all of us here have some appreciation for this story because we too were included in the promise of Abraham, right? And I think that's just incredible. But I feel for this man because he just wanted to be close to Jesus. He wanted to be comfortable. It was in his nature. He was so appreciative of what Christ had done. He just wanted to be with him. And Jesus decided to send him away anyway. And as we see, the task that Jesus gave him was not necessarily a massive task, right? He just said, just go home. You're going to talk to a lot of your friends and your family, and they're going to be like, we remember this guy. We know this guy. Who wouldn't happen to you? Right? It's going to be a natural storytelling opportunity. Right? I mean, it's, it's going to come up. I mean, everybody's going to ask you, what happened? And he says, tell them. He says, go home, tell your friends and family, what the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And I think for us here today, that is one immediate application for us. This story is an extreme example, right? An extreme example, but it's very symbolic of what Jesus does in our lives. This man was captive by sin. He was captive by sin, just like we have all been. He was enslaved by sin, just like we have all been. He was suffering from the destructive forces of sin, just like we have all been. And he was forgiven and cleansed and redeemed by Christ, just like we have all been. Right? And so the mission that God, that, that God gave this man is the same mission that we have. He says, go home. Go home. Tell your friends and family. The Lord, the God of Israel, the God of Jacob, the God of Abraham, the God of Moses, the same God has had a relationship with you and has redeemed you. Tell them, right? And so I, I think about that, and I think about this man who just wanted to be comfortable and to go and be with Jesus, yet Jesus is telling him, no, you've got to get out of your comfort zone. It's a simple act of faith, a simple act of obedience, but you've got to get out of your comfort zone and go talk to these people. And he's telling us the same thing. There were people who knew you, before you were a new creation, right? There are people who knew you. 
And whenever they, you show up in their lives now and they see this transformation in your life, however incredible the transformation may be, it may be more subtle, right? but whatever it is, they're going to see. Right? They saw that this demon-possessed man was no longer possessed by, by demons, but, but people will see the difference in your life today. Will you have the courage to go back to them and, and just tell them what God has done? I mean, I think about this. This is not cheesy evangelism right? This is conversations with friends and family. You know, this is, this is just having a chat when everyone's like, man, something's different in your life. What's going on? It's like, you know, honestly, I, you know, I was going down a dark path. I, I didn't believe in God. I'll tell you the truth, I didn't know what I believed. But year after year, life just seemed to get darker. I, I tried to fill my life with a number of things. I tried work. I tried ambition. I tried pride. I tried money. I tried alcohol. I tried drugs. I tried women. And tell you the truth, none of it lasted. None of it lasted. And it's hard to explain how dark things had become. And I never thought I'd be one of these people who went to church. I never thought I'd be one of those people. But honestly, right now, I have to tell you, I know God and I believe that he knows me. And for some reason, I now have a peace that I have never had before. And it is incredible. The God, God has been gracious to me. He has been incredible. Right? It's as simple as that. But the thing is, we had to get out of our comfort zones. It'd be very easy for us to only talk about this incredible thing that God has done in our lives to the people right here in this room. Because it's comfortable in here. Everybody believes the same thing. It's comfortable on Sundays. Everyone believes the same thing. Is it comfortable with your coworkers? Is it comfortable with, with your family members that you see on Thanksgiving? Like, is it comfortable with those people who knew you before you were a new creation? Right? That is what God is telling this man to do. Now, wrapping this up, I think it's brilliant of God that he never tells us exactly what he's planning to do with us. I think if God told me what he was planning on doing to do with me, I would be paralyzed in fear. I would be absolutely petrified. If he were to reveal the entire plan and say, by the way, God, or by the way, Blake, uh, today you're going to practice this simple, faithful act of obedience. It's not going to seem like a big deal to you, but it's going to do this. I just want to show you what it's going to do. If he told me that, I would be petrified. If he showed me what would be 40 years from now, 50 years from now, I would be petrified. I think there is wisdom in the fact that God does not tell us. He just tells us, hey, this is all going to work out, and by the way, you need to be obedient. Right? He didn't tell the people in the wilderness, oh, by the way, I'm going to tell you how every meal is going to come on a daily basis, but I'm just going to say, tomorrow you're going to have bread. Right? He just tells us to practice those simple acts of faith. And there's wisdom in that. And I want you to see what happens in this story. And it takes a bit of detective work in the Bible to figure out what happens in the story. But God gives us a glimpse of what he does with this very, very simple act of obedience. So after this story occurs, Jesus gets back in the boat and he begins his ministries. And he keeps going, and he actually takes a big loop all the way around Israel. He goes up into the area of Tyre and Sidon, and he comes all the way around and ends up making this big loop back through the Decapolis into Gentile area. And after a lot of things occur, I mean, like I said, you read through the book of Mark, you'll see this. He heals a woman, he brings a girl back to life, he feeds the 5,000 in the Jewish areas. Uh, He walks on water. He casts out more demons. You know, he does a lot of stuff. After that long journey, he finds himself back in this area. A little bit off, but he's very, very close to where the story of the pigs in the the Gerasenes would have occurred. So I want you to jump to Mark chapter 7, verse 31 real quick. 
And just to prove this, he says in verse 31, says, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And if you just let your eyes scan, just look at what happens at the, in Mark 8. What's the big, big story about Jesus that you see happen in Mark 8? He feeds the 4,000, right? Which, as a kid, I always thought that my Bible was getting the translations wrong. I was like, no, no, he already fed those guys, right? He fed the 5,000, 4,000, somebody's got their number wrong. This is the same story. No, it's not the same story. It's a completely different place, completely different time, completely different group of people, right? The 5,000 had occurred in a Jewish area. The 4,000 here, what had happened? Jesus comes back around into this area. First time he came, not a whole lot of people knew who he was, or no one knew who he was. They just saw this crazy guy who had done this, and they wanted him to get out of town. He shows up again after a little bit of time, and 4,000-plus people, 4,000 families, honestly, come to him, come to him, and they know who he is. They know who he is. They're bringing sick people. They're bringing all this stuff. They know who Jesus is. Why did all those people know who Jesus was? The man who had been cleansed, the man who had been healed by demons, did exactly what Jesus told him. He went back home, and he told his friends and family all that the Lord had done for him. Right? He told them that God has been gracious to me. Right? And those friends told other friends. He probably word got around. They saw the transformation in his life. And then when Jesus came back through again, everybody was ready. Right. And so I just think about what an amazing story that is, that this man had no idea why Jesus wouldn't let him get in that boat, right? why he didn't want him to come with him. He may have thought Jesus didn't love him for a second. Who knows? But he told him to go do something, and the man did it, and 4,000 plus people got to witness a miracle of God and be touched by God and to hear Jesus' teachings in a way they probably never would have before if the man had not been obedient. So I want this to be our challenge, Right? Be obedient to what God commands us. He tells us to do the same thing he told this man who had been possessed by demons. And he does the same work in your life, even though you may not see it in such a radical form in this day and age. But he has rescued you from the enslavement of sin, just like this man has. And he tells you to go tell your friends and family what the Lord, your God, has done for you. Make sense? Yep, it's a very big cup of cold water. Yeah. So uh, you guys, you know, read that back through. See if that comes to you again as you read this story. I don't want you to be scared by this story. It's a beautiful, beautiful story of the grace of God here in this, even though we are now without a lot of pork products as a result. So let me pray for us, and we'll get out of here for the day. Father, I, I thank you for these men, and I thank you for this story. I thank you for the wisdom that we get from your word. You are so much greater and so much more powerful than we give you credit for. Uh, We just thank you. We want to have complete control of our lives, and we want to do what we want to do. It makes us feel better. But you know better than we do. You know what is good, what is holy. You know what is going to be right in our lives. You know how your plan's unfolding. You know how your kingdom works so much better than we do. So when you ask us to do something simple, something any of us can do, May we be obedient. May we trust you. May we be able to just get out of that comfort zone that we've grown so accustomed to. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. May you be with each man who's in this room and on the call this week and keep them and their families healthy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys on Zoom.